Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix, a hearty breakfast mix that really, really cares about your gut health. It keeps you full and makes your body happy. What more could you want in a meal to start your day? You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, Here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking with author, journalist, adventurer, all-around interesting guy, George Toombs. Welcome, George. Hi, John. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Uh, so many things we, we have to talk about, but why don't uh, we start off by you just sort of telling our listeners a bit about yourself, your uh, you worn up many different hats so i just took off one hat you just <laughs> so no i'm uh i'm a montrealer uh my mother was from evanston illinois my father from quebec city here in canada and so i'm a dual american and canadian citizen and the way i feel about life is i'm an american in quebec a Quebecois in Ontario and a Canadian in the United States. So I'm always a little bit like <laughs> off, off balance, off yeah. balance, <clears throat> but that's just uh, the way things worked out. And um, I have done a lot of things in my life, but I am really deep down a creative person. And so I'm now in the process, having written uh, a few books and translated many, many books, I'm starting my own publishing venture. Uh, exclusively on Amazon with uh, a new novel, and there's more coming later this year. And I'm bringing out a feature-length documentary film, which I've been working on the last few years, actually, and many book translations of books that are really, really interesting. So it's a creative venture, and I'm just so pleased to be here seeing you, John. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see you again. Uh, well, the first thing we, we've got to talk about is the elephant in the room, of course, is Conrad Black being pardoned by Donald Trump, which uh, seems, and of course, as our listeners maybe know or don't know, but you wrote the definitive book on Conrad Black, uh, which has been translated into, you know. Anyway, it's, um, it's, it's a very fascinating book on how Conrad Black got into trouble on, on his whole kind of trajectory. So what do you think about him being pardoned by Donald Trump? Um, well, Conrad Black first of all, was born in Montreal in 1944. 
And after going through different corporate uh, takeovers and experiences and having a lot of problems with the law, he developed a newspaper empire, which included the, uh, included the Chicago Sun-Times at the high point. And he long claimed to be a very close personal friend of Donald Trump. Uh, they had uh, mansions in Palm Beach together, and they hung out together, I suppose. And so uh, Conrad Black was convicted um, in criminal court in Chicago of fraud and obstruction of justice and went to prison in Florida at FCI Coleman for uh, about um, three years. And uh, he was pardoned just recently. And a pardon means the criminal record is expunged, removed from your record, and he's now free to do whatever he wants to do in the United States. Was he um, uh, close to Trump in order to get the pardon? Uh, he certainly wrote a lot of very bombastic right-wing newspaper columns and articles in you know right-wing uh, organs in the United States and Britain and Canada defending Trump. And um, I think that bringing out a very uh, favorable biography of Donald Trump last year certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> uh, and the subtitle is Donald J. Trump, a, a president like no other. And we know that's true. Yeah. So I don't think the book is worth reading. Um, very little of what Conrad Black has, has written is worth reading. But, uh, you know, he's a very cagey person. And I'm sure that at this point in his life, uh, he's very happy to to have a pardon from his friend Donald Trump. Yeah, I I didn't know that they were actually friends. I didn't realize that, but I do remember reading his articles. I haven't read the biography. I had no interest in reading that, but I read some of the articles, and they were quite just straightforwardly like fawning, you know, on, yeah. on how amazing Donald Trump was, and he was so great, and you know all this stuff, and then he gets. Then he gets uh, a pardon, and it just—it's very bizarre. But I also noticed that a lot of people who, who were very critical of Conrad Black when he was in jail, and you know, people who had formerly been uh, very, very good, now they've suddenly, like, just changed their tune completely, and now they're they're back in with him, and they're like they're acting like it, you know, it never happened. We you know, like, we didn't. Uh, you know, I didn't like one person in particular, which I I've sent him numerous messages trying to get him to explain this. But uh, he's somebody who was very good friends with Conrad Black for years, and then he got very disillusioned with him, and he wrote a number of very scathing uh, things about him, and said, and he specifically said that his kind of fawning treatment of Trump was was embarrassing, and that he was obviously looking for a pardon, right? Well, now funny. that now that he's got the pardon, now that, that Conrad Black's out and everything, uh, he is just he's gone and erased all of those social media posts, and uh, the I don't know I mean he can't get rid of the articles, but he's now he's like oh no we're friends we got over it and it's all good it's very very bizarre right. Well, there was a very very funny headline on in the Washington Post just two weeks ago, Trump pardons billionaire friend who wrote a glowing book about him <laughs> and like i hope that the washington post occasionally gets the story right but this time they got it wrong for sure there's no chance that conrad black is a billionaire he had so many fines to pay and such legal fees 
uh, I started keeping track. And then I got into like seizures of property, the loss of share, the, the value of his shares. And he went from a high point of uh, a billion US, according to Rupert Murdoch, the owner of Fox, who's no slouch as far as money's concerned. He went down to, I don't know what, minus something. I have no idea. But there's no chance he's a billionaire. But um, people said to me, I, I was regularly on like CNN and the BBC and CBS and uh, National Public Radio, what have you. I mean, all the media were interviewing me, especially in Chicago uh, and uh, also in the UK with all the newspapers like The Times, The Guardian and all that. And um, they would regularly say to me, well, he's been convicted. Are you still in touch with him? And how's he doing? And I felt like this was a continuation of the celebrity theme, whereas I couldn't help noticing that a person who had been a billionaire and who's convicted of fraud and obstruction of justice, duh, he's done it to himself. And it's not like uh, someone plotted against him and obliged him to take bogus non-compete fees for non-existent companies, you know, that brought out a newspaper with a circulation of 5,000 or something up in Mammoth Lakes in California. This is something he brought on himself. And the scale of pride and hubris and greed and lust for power, uh, I found it really bewildering. But when he was convicted, I was neither pleased nor displeased because as a biographer, um, I felt, well, you know, I have to be as fair as possible. And I said to the publisher uh, when the book was getting ready to, to come out in 2007, we have to call the book Robber Baron because this man is actually a life peer that is a baron in the British House of Lords. Of course, when he got convicted and was in prison and was behind bars in Coleman in Florida, uh, he couldn't actually sit in the House of Lords and vote on legislation. Uh, actually, this man, whom I visited and got to know really well uh, in his mansions in Toronto and London and the offices that he had in New York, I mean, they were just extravagant with, you know, wall-to-ceiling portraits of Napoleon and oh, I don't know what. Um, of course, the, the works of Henry Kissinger prominently on display and Margaret Thatcher, two of his heroes, um, whom he paid $25,000 per day to sit with him and chat. Uh, on some advisory committee, but uh, this man ended up in a prison with uh, a kind of a honey honeycomb network of cells, no ceilings, constant video surveillance. I think his cell was like eight feet by nine feet, and he shared it with another inmate who is not a person of his choosing, of his social class, you know, uh, someone he would have to get to know. And some of the very... Um, uh, fawning Toronto media said, oh, it's amazing, because, of course, he was altogether a Torontonian as a Toronto businessman. That's why he did. His, he only lived in Montreal for one month. But um, the, the uh, Toronto media would say, it's amazing, you know, this man, he's written about uh, uh, a Quebec premier who's very autocratic in the 1940s and 50s, and he's written a biography of, of FDR, of Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he's so educated, and he's giving history courses behind bars. He's a, a really, truly altruistic person. Amazing. I looked at that and I said, yeah, well, the starting salary at Coleman, you know, is 12 cents per day. 
And this is like a real come down in life for someone who was lord of it all and had incredible uh, media power. Uh, he owned the Daily Telegraph, which has a circulation of like a million people. He owned the Jerusalem Post, although he's not Jewish. He had many, many media properties. It, what a what a what a what a um, catastrophic uh, drop in 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 his life. Um, and I know that he uh, royally hates my guts because uh, I, I was on – he wrote about me. He wrote some nasty things about me. Uh -huh. He didn't spell my name wrong, so it won't turn up in any databases anywhere. But um, <laughs> I, I remember being asked by, by, by one of the TV networks. I can't remember which one it is now. And they said to me, we'd like you to – like if you could sum up Conrad Black's importance, like in one sentence, what would you say? And I said, what was Conrad Black's claim to historical greatness? Of all Canada's greatest robber barons, he was the only one to get caught. That's the last line of your book. Like, that's the last oh, yeah, line right. of the okay. book. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah you're right about that. Of course, okay, fine. I remember it. <laughs> that's yeah, right. I can like, see it. It's like halfway down the page. That's I the last line, yeah. And that for, with, for that alone, like, he probably took out a voodoo doll and stabbed it, like, 14 <laughs> times with a pin. Of course, they would have voodoo dolls in prison, I'm sure, in Coleman, in Florida. They would, for sure. <laughs> probably. I... Uh, but I mean, a friend of mine was, his fellow inmates there, you have to con consider they were all there for drug offenses or possession of forbidden arms like machine guns on tripods or sawed-off shotguns. And this guy ran a world-class, if you like, media empire and had an entree. He had his, you know, with the British Prime Minister, the... the the, the uh, leadership in Israel, in Canada, certainly, when the conservatives uh, were in power, and at the White House. And the proof is, here's Trump years later giving him a personal presidential pardon. Yeah. So, what, what do you think about the argument that I, I've heard this from a number of people most recently, uh, a guy who's actually been on the podcast as a guest before, uh, Christopher Wallace. I'm sure he's listening. Hi. Hi, Wally. Uh, but, How are you? <laughs> yeah. uh, but Christopher Wallace, he told me that when, um, when Conrad was in jail, he wrote to him in prison. And Conrad Black would respond with these very, very long, like very eloquent, like amazing, often like, you know, handwritten like letters. And they, they corresponded back and forth for a while. And what he was saying, and he's not the only person who's told me this, that is that basically there was this a big kind of spate of shareholder activism where they wanted like some heads because of all the various Enron and all these different things. And that there are people like Martha Stewart and Conrad Black who, um, yes, what they were doing was wrong, but they, they got way bigger um, consequences and sentences than they would have got if it wasn't for the fact that um, the, sort of Wall Street was looking for scapegoats and looking for some heads to roll. Do you think so there's any, any truth to that? Well, I, I just remember that Conrad Black had a best buddy, right-hand man, and partner. Uh, shall we say partner in crime? I suppose we can. Um, David Radler, a Canadian. And David Radler uh, came clean and he... Um, he said that he would atone for what he had done wrong 
and he pleaded guilty and he paid $72 million U.S. in restitution and fines. And he did some time, although it was on a ranch, a horse ranch in Alberta, and I mean, shoveling shit is, you know, not great fun, but it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe he learned a few things out there. But, uh, and then he said he would write a book explaining everything, and he never did, which is probably the best thing to do because, like they say, it's better to be prudent a hundred times than to die once. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but uh, Conrad Black is not like that, and he's never shown any remorse for what he's done. I think what Radler did in terms of the agreement that he came to with the SEC and the fines that he paid and the restitution of money that he said he stole alongside Conrad Black, it gives an idea of the scale of things. And um, why do wealthy, powerful people have a special coupon that they pull out like, oh, no, no, that doesn't apply to me. All those laws, no, 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 no. I mean, there's a lot of people doing time in the United States for ridiculous offenses. Of course, I say this in Canada, where possession of cannabis is now okay. I've never smoked cannabis in my life, but uh, I'm not interested in it. But uh, there's people doing jail time, long, long time, and very bad time in prison for that. And here's someone who just gaily went through life, uh, you know, um, uh, taking advantage of people and of situations as much as possible. And, you, you know, if they, if they have any real difficulty, let them sue me. And he had the resources to win. It sounds to me a lot like someone who's sitting in the White House at the moment, Donald Trump. <laughs> he just merrily has gone through, you know, uh, basically with his university or the illegal immigrants working for his empire or what have you, they're just merrily shafting one group of people after another. And um, I, I, I don't think that uh, Black's conviction is so-called exemplary justice and incredibly unfair and that he writes long letters in, you know, uh, with his gold-plated fountain pen. Well, you know, that's nice. It gives him something to do behind bars. I'm sure he had a lot of free time. The CBC in Canada that asked me, the, the French service asked me, would I would like to go to visit him in the prison and um, with a TV crew? And like, so here you are. Uh, and of course, it would be in French. So I would say, Monsieur Black, Monsieur, uh, how are you? And like, how are you doing? It, was a kind of, it would be a kind of dumb interview. And um, I, I just was like, are the, are the media completely insane? You know, you don't just go to a federal penitentiary in the United States with a TV crew and like a very attractive young script girl and, you know, a producer and like lights, camera, action, like, okay, could you sit over here and like, let's get the, you know, the, the little, uh, the, the, the microphone to, the clipped on properly and I know to the jumpsuit. Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah. orange jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's people that, yeah. I mean, they had a, they had a riot at his prison while he was there. And really? I think some people were killed and there were helicopters coming in to remove inmates. That was maybe more in the medium security section, not in his low security section. But uh, they're dangerous places. And I know that when I was writing the book, I called up the FCI, the, the, the Bureau of Prisons, to see if I could visit FCI Otisville, which is near New York City. And um, they said, no, no, you can't come and visit. <laughs> we can't guarantee your safety. Like, there's a lot of things that happen here. I visited prisons in Canada 
And from what I can see, the wardens are no nicer than the inmates. It's, um, you know, you don't yeah. go there. You don't go well, there. I know Jonathan Kay told me that um, uh, when he was, he was a guest on the podcast and somehow that came up. But yeah. uh, we were talking about prisons and he said that he had only been to a prison once in his life and it was to go visit Conrad Black. Right. And he went to go visit him in um, in Florida. Uh, I mean, he didn't go down to Florida just for that. He was down there with his family anyway. And he went to go visit him with his uh, with his son, I think. And they, right. they went and um, he said it was really intense. It was a very... Yeah. He said it's it's no joke. It's not like a country not at club all. No. at all. It's a real prison. You know? Well, you, I, Canada is very different from the United States. One thing in Canada is that uh, when you get a, a sentence from the judge, you do one-sixth of your time. And the United States is much harsher. And also, when federal prosecutors get onto your case, they have a 95% chance of a conviction. Uh, things work differently. And I remember meeting uh, Conrad Black in Chicago. I figured out where he was staying. I just schmoozed around during the criminal trial. He wanted it to be a secret. And all the other media of the world, like they were all like, oh my God, do, does anyone know where he's staying? And I, I, I managed to just chat up someone uh, at a hotel randomly. And I said, well, of course, he's staying here, isn't he? And the person said, well, no, actually, he's not. He's still over at, at the Ritz. I said, oh, I see. No one knows that. He said, please don't tell anyone I told you. So I went and I so, sort of intercepted him at the very moment he was arriving with his wife, Barbara Emile, and his daughter. Um, uh, I think her name is Elana. And so this was Lord and Lady Black and Elena and, uh, you know, in a white cargo van with all kinds of security guards. And I didn't do it to pry into his life because you don't wish that on anyone to go to a penitentiary for years on end. I mean, anything can happen. Anything. And uh, if you consider the rates of, uh, you know, inmates who uh, get uh, gang raped in prison or killed, or beaten up, or um, extorted. I mean, he loved to tell everyone how wealthy he was, so he seems to be a prime target for extortion. Then I found out that um, then I then I then I had drinks with him shortly before the verdict came down because he was at liberty, you know, waiting for the verdict. He was in his hotel, and uh, he asked me how I thought things were going, and I said, you know, they. I think they've thrown everything at you that they can because they know some of it's going to stick in a jury trial. Some of it is going to stick. And at that point, he blew up and he was like a tiger raging inside a cage. He absolutely, uh, he was, I've rarely seen so much anger projected by somebody. And, uh, you know, it was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. And then he stormed off. At that time, he actually paid for the drinks, which I found unusual <laughs> because usually I was the one paying. But when the verdict came down, I was kind of, you know, when you see someone destroy their public, financial, political, social life on their own, no one forced him to do it. And the laws he broke, he broke so overtly and merrily and like with such gusto no it's not exemplary justice i don't think so i uh i um, you figure he he had it coming he got 
Well, there's something very curious about Conrad Black, I will say that, and that he has in his character, he's not only what I would call right-wing, uh, which is not, it doesn't have to be bad, but I mean, the way he does it, it's very authoritarian. He loves a kind of view of society where there are, it's, it's very corporatist, like in the 1930s. And he wrote a book about a, the Quebec premier of the time, Maurice Duplessis, uh, who, who was uh, premier in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and who's a very authoritarian figure. And one of the most corrupt politicians that Canada's ever had, and we've had quite a few, but not on his scale, because I calculated that just the artworks that he accepted were worth something like $500 million in today's oh, money. God. He was an extremely corrupt politician, and he received bags of money, boxes, they were actually bankers' boxes of cash from, from people and... You know, that's how they got what they wanted done by the premier of Quebec at the time. But Black's take on this was, oh, no, it's not what you think. And actually, uh, you know, I'm going to redeem him and I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, restore his reputation. And uh, I remember Henry Kissinger saying to me uh, in his office on Park Avenue, well, you know, Conrad has written this magnificent book. <laughs> which gives me extreme lower back pain when I lift it. However, I have looked at it a few times, touched the pages, and of course, on the first page, with his gold-plated fountain pen, yeah, he's written my name. Thank you, Conrad. I really appreciate you put two S's in kissing you. But um, uh, he, he wrote it to impress people and as a kind of a business card to open doors. And as a right-wing contrarian, someone who's always finding a way to say, well, no, these figures are not as bad as you think. Then he, he, he upset all of his conservative friends by writing a very favorable biography of Franklin Roosevelt, which didn't make sense at all. And I remember sitting in uh, the living room with uh, John Kenneth Galbraith in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in, you know, in, the, in, in his latter years, and he was saying, well, 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 no, Conrad Black is just the kind of person FDR was going after. He didn't want like these corrupt um, financial people to uh, to be ripping off shareholders and destroying value and, you know, putting people out of work. He wasn't in favor of that at all. But many of uh, Conrad Black's Republican friends or more conservative friends were appalled that he should write a book about Roosevelt. Well, then his next book, which he was writing actually during the criminal trial, was about Richard Nixon. But it's not a book about Richard Nixon as he really was with all of the shit that he did and how destructive it was for Americans and for the world. No, it was all like he was an elder statesman and you'll see I'm, you know, the subtext was like, I'm like Richard Nixon and I'm going to make a comeback at some point. So, I mean, you know, his his attitude, he, he said to me, I remember meeting him in his uh, mansion in Toronto before the trial started. And I said, well, I'm bringing up this biography. He said, well, well, I want, I'll give you exclusive interviews. I said, well, you, you can if you, if you like. I mean, but I don't want to pay for that. I don't want to, you know, give you a quid pro quo. And he said, well, well, I just want to be sure that you bring it out before the trial starts. And I said, well, listen, I'm, I, I'm just going to southern Argentina, to Patagonia with my son. CBC is sending me, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation is sending me to do a documentary down there. And I'm taking my son along. We're going to be uh, on horseback up in the Andes. And 
I, I can't write the book while I'm on horseback. I just can't do that. And he was looking at me like, oh, shit, what can I do with this guy? But then, but then he said, but you can write 10,000 words per day. I mean, you could just get into it, 10,000. Well, if I wrote 10,000 words a day, it would be total bullshit. <laughs> it would be like just appalling, like just bile or brain juice. And, but I think that's what he did with the Donald Trump book. He did it for a specific purpose. And I do believe that it was to just remind his great friend. I mean, they weren't that great friends. They, were, they, they knew each other up to a point. But to remind him, look, you can do it. You can give me a presidential pardon and then I'm scot-free. And, and in a way, I'm glad for Conrad Black that he got that. I, when I was writing the book, I, luck, I like Alfred Hitchcock because I'm also a filmmaker. And I, I, I like Alfred Hitchcock a lot. And the problem that I had writing Robber Baron was I was in the middle of a story that was constantly changing and I didn't know what the story frame was, if you like. Was it Vertigo or Frenzy or The Wrong Man or I Confess or, you know, what? I mean, I was... Or, uh, you know, dial M for, well, there's no murder in this case. It was like dial M for muddy, uh, murky behavior or whatever. But I, I didn't know what the story was going to be. So, yeah, I, I must confess, I still end up reading his his articles often just because they're at, even if I completely disagree with him, his a typical op-ed from Conrad Black is just on a completely different level in terms of like his everything from like his language to his his grasp of history and ideas he just compared to like your typical journalist yeah which is like somebody who's like a semi-literate person who well, some didn't know some what what to do with their life so yeah. they're coming to become a journalist and like he will just at his fingertips you know remember like the the war of 1838 and the war of and and find all these like parallels to what's happening now right. with previous things and there's just there's a a kind of a a learning well, there and kind of which is just I'll give you, you just what, don't get you just don't get that most I, of the I'll time I'll give you one thing for Conrad Black to write a book about Donald Trump and su- and the subtitle is a president <laughs> like no other that's just factually accurate so yeah. I mean yeah. good for him he's uh well well, and, and enough about uh, Conrad Black. So the the second thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about was um, Aronson. Just, I mean, this is just such an amazing story, and I think everybody should know about it, especially now that uh, well, people, I have a, yeah, people I have are making a feature film, a documentary okay. film coming out. It is largely for the educational market in the United States. I can't guarantee that it's going to be on. Uh, PBS or what have you, but uh, it's it, 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 it's United States and Canada. That's the way I see it. I have been working on a film, a polar film, polar a film about polar exploration in Arct in the Arctic and Antarctic. So this means Alaska, the Yukon in northern Canada, Nunavut in northern Canada, Norway, and Antarctica. And I'm fascinated by the case of Roald Amundsen, a Norwegian explorer of about a century ago because he was a person who is treated as this incredible universal genius and national hero by Norwegians. And some of them, I know one biographer who told me, oh, Amundsen, if he was living in a larger country, he would have been like 
Napoleon, a military genius. Well, you know, why distort things? Because he was actually a Norwegian and his being Norwegian is a very big part of Roald Amundsen's story. That is a Scandinavian living in a Nordic country with a culture of, you know, extreme cold and the wilderness and skiing and master mariner and all that. And then some of the British people that I met, uh, I'll tell you why in a moment, some of the British people met said, oh, he's just a terrible arch villain and a mischievous schemer. And because of his success, Robert Falcon Scott failed and died miserably, which is like shifting the blame for mistakes. And so there's controversy about Roald Amundsen as a figure. And what I found out, I, I said to myself, look, this story should have several different strands. One strand is what he said himself and his contemporaries. So that's like you know, there are accounts, but it's, there. you know, explorers need money and they need to finance the next expedition. So there's a bit of self-promotion in that. You have to treat that with a little bit of skepticism. But it's very interesting what they said themselves. And his own accounts are very interesting. Then I tracked down family members. So I got to know the Amundsen family in Norway. What are they saying today about him? And then I went to uh, England and uh, Scotland, actually, and interviewed uh, Robert Falcon Scott's grandson, Falcon Scott. I interviewed Alexandra Shackleton, an Irish, uh, an English lady who's uh, the granddaughter of of um, Ernest Shackleton. The, uh, Bernard de Gerlache, who's a, a baron in Belgium, who's the grandson of Adrien de Gerlache, a great polar explorer. And, uh, you know, I really got into it. I, I found it, listening to the family stories was really interesting. But then I said, hold on, that's only part of the story. There's also... Another side of things, which is the Aboriginal people that Roald Amundsen got to know, especially in northern Canada, and he had very significant interactions. He was extremely respectful. He had rarely, uh, you know, for a, an explorer of his time, a kind of ethic of exploration, do not exploit the Inuit, uh, as we say in Canada, the Eskimos, as they say in the United States, uh, you know, uh, show respect, never um, uh, abuse them, never steal things from them or knowledge, but he shared his knowledge and he learned from them and he never stopped praising the uh, experience that he'd had with them, the context that he'd had with them, which is, you know, very positive given the amount of racism in the world. Uh, he was not a racist person. And um, so I tracked down the the grandsons of the woman who had proposed marriage to him, uh, an Inuk woman, Inuit that is, uh, in Nunavut. The grandchildren still had stories about that, and something had happened between Roald Amundsen and this woman, Kudlyuk. Um, uh, they'd traveled together, they'd slept in igloos together. I don't know what exactly happened, to what extent they're relationship involved uh, physical intimacy and I don't really care but to you know to get to the point of this woman proposed marriage to him I know that because it's in Roald Amundsen's writings but a lot of the historians in Europe have discounted this as like fantasy and like oh no 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 and uh, you know the Inuit didn't teach him anything he learned from them by observing them well no no come on they shared a lot it's very interesting he also adopted um, a Chukchi girl in northeastern Siberia so that's uh, another indigenous or ab aboriginal tribe or nation in Siberia, and he brought her back to Norway. And it's true that their story together is quite bittersweet because he went bankrupt and then he sent her back to Siberia because he just couldn't 
handle trying to raise uh, a grand, you know, a, a daughter, adopted daughter. But I tracked down the daughter of that daughter, so his granddaughter by adoption. And so I'm putting together f- from different points of view family stories along with the personal accounts. Then I have my own epiphanies as a filmmaker. Like I went up to the Arctic on an icebreaker in the Beaufort Sea north of Yukon in Alaska, and the temperature was uh, at the best of times like, uh, I don't know, 50 below. I yeah, mean, there's, that, there's one scene in your movie which yeah. just like I think gave me like nightmares for where the polar bears like right there. Yeah, and they're saying like yeah. like because like, that that's an yeah. animal that still eats well, it's, it's, humans. Yeah. They yeah. they they eat humans. Well, when of, they're hungry, yeah. Out of well, they're yeah. almost always hungry. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but it's they, right there, and they like, run really fast too. Yeah, they re- they're, yeah. I, I, I like polar polar bears are actually kind of yellowish. They're not white the way people imagine them. They have kind of uh, an oil in their fur which is a little bit yellowish. But uh, if they uh, you know if they want you, they're going to get you. Yeah, I was There's no two I, ways about it. Uh, somebody was telling me. I, a hunter who goes goes up there often. He said that um, polar bears and grizzlies, as well, they can outrun a horse. Oh, for sure! Yeah. Like they they can out if there's a horse that they can run down a horse. Like it's just weird because it doesn't look like a cheetah. It doesn't look like something that would be really fast. We hear a lot about polar bears, you know, being on the verge of extinction and like they're really suffering. Actually, there's five distinct populations of polar bears in northern Canada, and four of those populations are doing really well, mostly because journalists go up there and get eaten. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know that's, that's terrible. <laughs> but then I, but, yeah. the, but then I also, I mean, I did a year in, um, I did a PhD in the history of science at McGill University here in Montreal, and I, I did a year, a postgraduate year in medical sciences at Oxford, and I'm in England, and I'm very interested in health and. Uh, health sciences and uh, so there's a health component in the film as well Uh, psychological health which is a big issue for people in the polar regions and also physical health now the thing is some people say okay but you've been talking about this film and where is it and I ran into a kind of block it's a bit like when I was doing my PhD at a certain point you've collected so much information it's like you're you have the world's biggest casserole on the stove and you, you're making spaghetti for like 25 people and then some very mischievous person comes, takes all the spaghetti and dumps it on the floor <laughs> and then you're supposed to figure out how to connect one strand to the other to make a coherent whole. That's a bit what happened with my film. Then I had a dream and in my dream, I mean, I'm a creative person, my... what. I experience in dreams has a lot of uh, meaning for me. It helps me a lot, although I'm not a very self-involved person. But Alfred Hitchcock was in my dream. Alfred Hitchcock. And I've watched these <laughs> movies. I've watched these movies. I finally gave away my DVDs, DVD sets of all Hitchcock's movies because I'd seen them all like a hundred times. So I was just like, I can't take it any Alfred Hitchcock came to, my, to me in a dream and he said, George, George, I would really like to talk to you about your film. You're having a very hard time completing it. I don't know if that's his <laughs> accent, but honestly. So I said, well, well, well Alfred, I mean, Hitch, what are you doing here? He said, well, I've come to help you. And there's many elements in your films, which you've seen in my films. For example, Victorian iconography and 
pre-Raphaelite women and uh, Gothic landscapes with tiny, tiny people in grandiose landscapes. It was very polar. And uh, uh, haunted castles and, uh, 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 you know, uh, terror and Edgar Allan Poe and different animals. And, uh, I mean, uh, that put the fear of God into people. Uh, I, I mean, I'd like to help you. And I, I, I'd like, I, I realize that you're not able to pull it all together into a coherent whole. <laughs> you know, I'm very good at that. And I would like to take over your project. And I would like to direct it for you. And, um... I, I, don't worry, we can we can share the credit. So I said, well, li, li, listen. So you're teaming up with Alfred? That's wonderful. Well, no, but I, <laughs> at the point that that happened, I suddenly relaxed and I said, okay, I'm an apprentice. He's the master and he's telling me literally what to do. And he explained to me a lot of things. And he said, you know, the core emotions that you want are this and that. And what you have as a problem in your film is you're still doing what you did with your PhD in history and your work as a journalist. You're trying to get facts to drive the story. Don't do that. And I said, well, what should I be doing? And he said, well, you know, the facts are important and don't put any facts in that are wrong. But it's not just an accumulation of facts. That's not a film. A film is driven by emotions that the viewers connect with. And they, you know, everyone knows... Everyone in their lives, they know the meaning of love and suffering, sacrifice, survival, hope for, and the hopes for the future, and, you know, basic fear that gets you in your gut. He said, that's, that's where your film is at. That's where it is. So since then, I, uh, I'm, I'm going to be completing it in September this year, and then I will be... Uh, doing the festival circuit. But it's funny to have an experience like that where someone from the beyond comes <laughs> and explains to you how to organize creative work. I mean... Yeah, I, I've only had an experience like that once and it was it was when I was in um, at the end of grad school and I I basically, I was having a... It was very you know, somewhat similar, actually. I was having a, a hard time... Um, yeah, I was having a hard time sort of pulling it all together. And I had this wacky dream one night where I was visited by the Roman goddess Fortuna, right? And she nice. said, and she said, uh, you are a, you are like my, you are my prophet. You are a prophet of the goddess Fortuna. And you are basically trying to remind people that, uh, that we can't control everything. And, and that your dissertation is really about, like, saying that uh, you you can't sort of eat all the right things and jog and take your vitamins and minerals and make sure you're not going to get cancer or heart disease or that uh, there's a bunch of uh, th there's a bunch of stuff that's out of your control and people need to respect that right and uh, and then in the dream she also said and I want you to remember what Max Weber said in that book that he was writing, the, you know, the great German sociologist, like, remember what Max Weber said in the sociology of religion. And so I got up in the morning and I was like, wow, that's a really crazy dream. I wonder what drug I took yesterday that did this. Anyway, but, but I, I got up the next day and I went and I looked in the sociology of religion. And sure enough, Max Weber has this wonderful passage where he says, um, 
the the English translation is is happy, uh, which at that time meant more like lucky, right? Happy. Now we think more of as being like joyful and in a good mood. Back then it was more like kind of happy meant like a, a very fortunate person, right? But uh, the the line it's, it's something along the lines of uh, when the happy man. Uh, thinks about his own good fortune, he is rarely satisfied with just the reality of his good fortune. No, he wants something more than that. He wants the knowledge that he has earned his good fortune, and he wants the knowledge that the unfortunate, the unhappy man, has earned his misfortune. And then he goes, it's just this unbelievable uh, piece of kind of, and he says that in religion and politics, if you are really healthy or really rich or really successful, what you want from your religion and what you want from your politics is somebody who says, you deserve it. You earned everything because you're a good person. You work hard and you want to know, yeah, those poor people, they're poor because they're just lazy pieces of shit. They spend all their money on beer and cigarettes and lottery tickets, and they deserve their well, honestly, their suffering. I, I like to yeah. buy lottery tickets. So. <laughs> Sorry, but I, he, like anyway, and it was just I this wacky. Shouldn't. It was this wacky dream, <laughs> and uh, I got up the next day and I thought about this, and it just helped me tie the entire thing together. And I I wrote uh, the dissertation, and after I had that dream, I wrote the whole thing in about like four months, and I was done. So wow. yeah, it's very That's odd. Amazing. Like you can yeah. have these like weird, and I think what it is is that you're on some, I guess, like some subconscious level, you know what you're supposed to do, but you're kind of, I guess, like your your rational mind just can't like get its shit together. And to, and I you, have a theory. What's your theory? I have a theory about psychology. <laughs> well, I don't think the Roman goddess Fortuna actually nah, visited I, I, me in a dream. I have so. a theory about psychology, which is that. Uh, Men take, no, I'm just kidding. Men, uh, we have the shit knocked out of us at a young age. I'm not saying my parents did this, but maybe my schooling did this and society in general. You have the shit knocked out of you. And you're supposed to be uh, task-focused, uh, oriented, uh, very disciplined person. Uh, I'm sure a lot of your listeners is, are going to, know what I'm talking about, just get on with it. And, you know, don't let your emotions get in the way. And something called intuition is something to stay away from and don't trust that. It's like for women, it's not, you know, it's not masculine. And actually, life has taught me that this is total rubbish because the intuition is one of the most important gifts that I have to have insight into situations, into people uh, to bring some kind of understanding which is not all based on rational rules because I mean rational rules uh, screw you up I mean look at us in the world today we are now facing uh, you know driverless cars based on artificial intelligence which are going to crash into each other and knock people down all based on rational rules of some nerd in uh, you know Silicon Valley <laughs> or Waterloo Ontario or whatever I mean these people who, who are building up all kinds of rational rules like if this happens that ha you know th that's the consequence and our life is not really like that it's not really based on rational rules and we need to it's very healthy 
for us to uh, connect to our own intuition, but also to other people's intuition, like you sitting right next to me, John, and for us to come to an understanding about what we're talking about or yeah. f- experiencing in life. I mean, why does what you just said make sense to me? It's not because of rational rules. It's because of my experience of life and, and my intuitive understanding of life. And that's something very, I believe is very helpful in life. Yeah, I think the I think intuition very often is is actually just you picking up on certain things, like certain kind of information that's coming at you from the world or from the environment or from another person and you're picking up on things, but you're not conscious of the fact that you're picking up on those things. So, let's say uh you know, like, let's say you're in a situation and you just get like a bad vibe from somebody. Like there's something you're not, you know, you're not right. You don't kind of trust this person. You don't trust the situation, right? Chances are you're probably, my, my guess is that in a situation like that, you're actually picking up on little kind of micro expressions on their face. For sure. You're picking up on the fact that maybe they're like looking around to see if you're alone. Right, because they're right. like looking to like rob you or something, or maybe you're you're smelling the fact that they're putting off like certain kind of like stress hormones or something like that. Or like I think actually those are signals. Yeah, but I think yeah. what we call intuition very often, I think it's not like some you know spiritual thing. You know, like I don't think it, maybe it's that, but I think very maybe sometimes it's that. But I think very often it's actually just physical information that we're getting from the environment that we're not consciously aware of and but but are we're responding to it in a in a physiological way like and that's um that's one of the things like uh i i always you know i always tell like my especially my female students but all of them i'm like if you ever are in a situation and you get like like a bad sketchy vibe from from a guy listen to it Listen to it because you're probably actually picking up on something about the tone of voice or the look, which is and, and just like go with that. But unfortunately, what happens and I'm not saying this is I get this, too. This is a crazy thing. Um, you have like certain people who they decide, OK, I really, really want to overcome my internalized uh, sexism or racism or my like internalized prejudice and stuff like that. And so they will kind of train themselves to not listen to the, any of their alarm bells. And like, I mean, the worst, the worst story I can think of for this, I mean, I can think of many, but one in particular is a friend of mine that I went to grad school with and she went as a, as an aid worker in Africa and she was so convinced that she had been you know, polluted and ruined by American society and re- internalized racism and stuff like that, that when she would ever feel kind of, oh, this is maybe not a very safe situation, she would tell herself, like, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Like, because I, I have to, this is just my internalized, like, horrible, like, racism kicking in. And she actually um, was kidnapped and was, like, you know, gang raped by by some guys in right well, I'm not going to say the country but um in in Africa and she and she said you know I knew like 
many times throughout like the situation i knew this is like i'm my spidey sense is going off like crazy my intuition is telling me this is not a good but she's like oh no no, that's just my internalized racism i should like i should ignore this right it's very bizarre when you like what you're saying that guys are raised to ignore the voice of intuition and like i think it's very dangerous whenever you are uh, in whether it be like the toxic masculinity, I guess that you're sort of talking about, or whenever you're in an ideology that tells you don't listen to your emotions, don't listen to your intuitions. I had an experience um, uh, at the end of the civil war in Lebanon, uh, and I went with a, a Canadian TV crew to uh, investigate hostage takings. And there were still quite a few hostages held in Lebanon. And some had been moved to Syria and others had been moved from Lebanon to Iran. Uh, Of course, it's very hard to find hostages because by nature, by by definition, they're hidden. They're concealed, whether in private homes or transported in coffins, uh, strapped underneath... uh, delivery vans or what have you and um or simply have 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 become disappeared people that is tossed into the ocean and um i i uh didn't take my american passport with me on that trip no i didn't do that i had my canadian passport but i uh i was in a situation where it was the beginning of a kidnapping and um I think it's one of the times where I use my intuition the most. Otherwise, there's a good chance that I wouldn't be here talking to you today, John. And um, I said to myself, oh, crap, here are all these people who are very well armed, armed to the teeth, as they say, and they want to do me a lot of harm. And they have their reasons. And, you know, probably word has got around that uh, it's because of what I've been investigating and we've left traces all over town. Um of what we're trying to achieve. And we confronted the heads of uh, militias who had kidnapped, you know, a lot of people. And um, we'd organized some major confrontations with the family of a victim. And uh, so um, I decided that I would shut off some of the signals that you mentioned. Like people give out signals, like their eye movement... And uh, I don't know, Mom, I can't vouch for my body odor during that <laughs> experience. It doesn't really matter. But I had a pair of Ray-Bans on. And someone, before I went to, to Lebanon, who was very much involved in intelligence in, in the United States, said to me, you should read this manual. It will tell you everything you need to know. And by the way, never look these people in the face if you get into a you know, sticky situation. And I said to myself, Boulder Dash or the equivalent in Canadian English, uh, hoser, don't say, you know. Uh, no, I have to keep control of the situation. So I kept my Ray-Bans on, which means that these people could not see what I was thinking. And something came over me, and I'm a fan, as much as I'm a fan of Alfred Hitchcock, I'm a fan of Laurence Olivier, too. And I was just like, okay, this is it. This is your performance. This is Lauren. You're on the stage and you are Laurence Olivier and you're playing, I don't know, Richard III or what have you. And I was just like, people in, in front of me were 
you know, they had weapons, they had the means to dispatch me right then and there, or they might hold on to me and see what I was worth if I had a valuable watch, which of course I didn't, but, uh, you know, or a passport that would give me some value on the, on the market, because it's all a, a business transaction for people to take hostages. It's not politically motivated. It's just uh, it's a form of piracy. Um, and my attitude as Laurence Olivier was projecting such power that I was going to snap their heads off with my fingers. Just like, just like that. I'm, your head, you see your head? Your head is on your shoulders. You may be armed. You may be thinking you are, you know, in a position of power. But you're five feet tall. I'm 6'2". And these hands are going to snap your head off like that. And actually, <laughs> I just managed to get out of the situation. And then suddenly, someone with a very friendly machine gun happened to just turn up. And he was on another side in the, in the, in the region. And he got me out of there. And he understood exactly what had just happened. And he said, you're going to be all right. So I, w I was very grateful. But this all lasted probably about 10 hours, the whole process. But I, I kept my Ray-Bans on. I don't wear Ray-Bans. Now I, I like guess sunglasses, actually, but just the way they fit on my face. But I, 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 I think that it's a, it's, it's a case where you're shutting off the signals about your true intentions and what you're about to do and, and how you feel about it. If I didn't keep my sunglasses on, they would have seen that I was terrified. And it mm -hmm. took, actually took me six months to come down emotionally from that experience. Um, and all my friends at the Christian Science Monitor, I was doing a lot of reporting for them at the time. They said, are you crazy? You're an American citizen. Don't do that. Don't go to Lebanon. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> You know, you know, have four little kids and they're so beautiful and just don't get yourself in that situation ever again, promise us. And then um, I went to a part of the foreign office in London, uh, which is uh, dealing with, uh, I guess, MI6. And they, they give me a debriefing that lasted quite a long time. And they told me never to go back. And I actually never did. So... Where is it? I mean, I, I'm I'm struggling here to remember, but I remember you told me once <laughs> you had met this like this warlord, and you like looked him in the eye and you asked him like, you know, do you actually are you okay with the things that that you've done? And he got like really defensive. I'm like, it's it's a very old well, yeah, memory. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, but it's where it's, was that? Was that in the Middle East or in Africa? That, that, uh, well, I, I I've I've been in some uh, kind of. Di um, sketchy situations in in Africa as well but no I think this was in Lebanon and the thing is you know through the mass media we have this vision of people who are terrorists who are first of all politically motivated and second of all are sociopaths and are like horrible people and uh, on both counts I would say no it's a business it's like human trafficking uh, they're paid to blow people up they're paid to to take hostages, they get a lot of money out of hostage taking and ransoms and all that. It's, it's it's a kind of business. It's a kind of a form of piracy. Being sociopaths, I have no problem with that. They are sociopaths, but uh, to want to hurt other people that much, and it's not all wars of liberation or you know somehow justified. I mean, they're going deliberately for random people who have nothing to do with the conflict to try to create as much 
terror and fear as possible in the general population. But I did notice um, one time with the head of one of the militias, a Shiite militia in Lebanon, uh, it's the first time I actually met someone like that. And I had totally lied to get the interview. I wrote a letter to his mother saying what a great human being he was and that the purpose of our interview was <laughs> to talk to him about tourism in Canada and, you know, getting visas for Lebanese people to visit Canada more often. And it was a total lie. Um, and he was actually a minister in the government as well as being head of a private militia. But that's the way Lebanon was at the time. And... Um, uh, he wasn't too pleased when we produced the son of one of the hostages he had taken, and I believe that his militia transferred this hostage to another militia, and um, nobody knows what happened to her since then. Um, but he, uh, this was all happening in real time with the cameras rolling, and he was very annoyed. But it's the first time that I saw a person I would call objectively a terrorist, someone who was responsible for thousands of deaths, of civilian random deaths in his own country, and who was a multi-billionaire, uh, partly as a result of trafficking of different kinds. It was the first time I saw this man as a, as a person, as, a, as someone, as a subject, as someone who had his own view of life. And I, I noticed when there was like uh, a backfire outside, you know, the, that he jumped like two inches on his chair and we were interviewing him in a kind of no man's land uh, in uh, a part of West Beirut that is very sketchy. Um, and, you know, all the people around him had Kalashnikovs and they were all like, oh, the boss is not happy. You know, he's not happy. It's sort of like a, a mafia movie or something. Um, but he was terrified. I don't think anyone was more terrified than he was. Certainly he was more terrified than we were, and we weren't doing too badly. You know, I mean, we were kind of scared because we weren't like stuttering when we were speaking to him. But, um, but I, 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 then I, and then I began thinking, does he have a conscience? And I believe deep down all human beings have a conscience. And what is going on in his conscience? Does he just rationalize things like, you know, everything that's happening in our country is Israel's fault? Or does he say to himself, well, you know, I shouldn't be doing all these things. I have to, you know, change careers or, you know, take up woodwork or, you know, I don't know, I don't know what, you know. I mean, what goes on in his mind? And I, I, I remember doing the rounds in Beirut and meeting people who were doing a lot of really, 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 really bad things. And they were kind of surprised, like, who the hell is this Canadian journalist? Like, you know, innocence abroad. Like, he's, he's like, delusional. Like, and he's asking us questions about how to find hostages. Like, is he crazy? And <laughs> maybe they found me kind of funny. But one of them said to me, could you please help me get a Canadian passport? I can't live here any longer. So they were also in their own way, living a human experience, and that doesn't justify nothing that they did. Mm -hmm. But uh, that was... Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess, you know, living in Canada most of my... or the United States for most of my life, I didn't... Um, 
I, I'm not, I'm just so, that world is so foreign to me. But yeah. I remember for a while when things were really, really, I mean, they're still pretty horrible in Mexico. But when they were very horrible, like in Juarez, where like it was just, I mean, it's like the murder capital of the world. They And, and we have at, at John Abbott College, we have um, a lot of exchange students, right? And for a while... It was it was like half our exchange student program was all like Mexicans, right? And I was teaching this one class because they they actually got so such a huge demand of Mexican um, students wanting to come up and study in Canada, and they would they were just filling up programs all over Western Europe, all over Canada, the states, and everything. And I we got so many new students at one point that we had to like have a section that of of sort of intro to philosophy basically like a first humanities class that was all mexican students and i taught this class and i remember asking them once i said so why are you all up in canada like why did you choose here and they they all like started laughing and they said uh, well our parents just want us out of the country as much as possible and then they started telling me these stories like they Every single student in the class, they all personally knew somebody who had been kidnapped. They had like witnessed murders. They had witnessed kidnappings. It was just routine. And they said like our parents just want us out of the country as much as possible. And just very terrifying like when things break down that way. I mean, and that that's happening in... I mean, that was definitely the case in Lebanon for a long time. It's the case now in, in Brazil. I mean, we... We interviewed um, uh, one of their our last guests, or the second to last guest, uh, in Rio, and he said that there uh, a big comprehensive study just came out where they went all in different parts of Mexico, Mexico in Brazil, and they asked people in these questionnaires. Big survey company, forty three percent of Brazilians say that they want to leave Brazil. 43 percent i was completely blown away by that yeah like that's and that's that they want to find a way and actually at the end of the interview with this uh with this guy a bernard asa guy who's a businessman in rio he said to me uh, he said yeah i'm i've recently applied for canadian he's i want to bring my family up to canada i don't want to be here anymore like so like when things get so violent and so crazy that people just want to leave, I mean, that's, that's something I've never had to experience. Well, I, uh, I've seen a lot of things happen and a lot of things have happened to me and I've done a lot of things in my life. And I decided that since one of my favorite songs is Louis Armstrong singing What a Beautiful World, What a Wonderful World. Yeah. I listen to the song over and over again, and uh, I hear it all the time now. I don't have to listen to it. But I, I, I want to do things in my life. I'm 62. I want to do things in my life that have a positive impact. And um, part of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, after I wrote the book on Conrad Black, uh, they offered me a very nice job, which would have been uh, in, an investigative reporter uh, bringing down criminal fraud in politics, in business, 
um, you know, with a budget and an office and staff and, you know, a, a show or or I would be on part on a show or I'm not too sure of the details. And I said, let me think about it. And then I, 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 I said to myself, this will put me on the track of always pursuing what in Quebecois French we call la bibite, the, you know, the, <laughs> the nasty thing that is really gone tits up, that is really screwed up. And, the you know, crime is no joke, but to be a crime reporter, you have to be ahead of the criminal justice system. You have to be investigating, risking your life and your mental and physical health to get stories that and the evidence and to you know testimony through interviews documentation that will bring people down that the criminal justice system will then address and we've seen cases of this recently in the United States where you know the justice department is taking up cases based on media reporting because you know those journalists are ahead in the game and you know they do a very good job and those journalists end up dead in Mexico. Sometimes, yes, that's true. Yes, uh, Penn in, International in other, in now lists lists uh, the but most I, dangerous place to be a journalist in the world is Mexico right now. I'm not surprised. Um, but I decided that I would not accept the offer because I would like to do things in my life that it will have a positive impact. So I've decided to do something completely different, and I've just written this novel, which I yeah, I saw I, that. That's amazing. It's uh, just you just it, finished it. It's exclusively on Amazon. It's called Mind the Gap, and it's a coming of age novel, which is a dramatic comedy about a young man. And some people, like yourself, who you know me quite well, or my children, will say, "Dad, this character is exactly like you." But no, I mean. <laughs> You, you you draw inspiration from your own life in some ways, but you have to change a lot of details. And, of course, I wanted to avoid lawsuits because uh, I, I don't want to get into, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, legal trouble. But I wrote a coming-of-age novel about a young man um, who is kind of clued out for different reasons and whose mother is off somewhere and he doesn't really understand where and he finds out later, well, she was actually in a psychiatric asylum and uh, you know he develops a relationship with her and he hopes to find true love and he has some misadventures with uh, one young woman after another and uh, he has a, a career as a journalist which is you know that's true to life uh, I did a lot of uh, reporting for BBC radio and for what used to be called American Public Radio which is now American Public Media a little bit on NPR as well and different media around the world, and I was editorial writer in a big metropolitan paper in Canada for a while. So, and this, the protagonist, this takes place in, uh, is Montreal? Is it's it? In, yeah, it's in, it's in three places mainly. I mean, you know, when you market a book, you say, this is a book based in Canada. Well, no, it's actually partly in Montreal, which is a very interesting, beautiful city, we have two big international languages here, English and French. So, And the interaction between English and French is very, very interesting. Uh, at least that's what I feel. And part of the story is in Cape Cod because um, the main character... What city in Cape Cod? Uh, it's a place that doesn't exist. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's down on the south side of the Cape. And um, his grandmother has some kind of dreams of social grandeur and she calls the place she lives Griefton 
which is based on her husband, her late husband's family name, Grieve. But actually, there's no such place. That's just the name that she That's gave. Right, to, right around Wellfleet or yeah, Truro. You know, yeah, it's down there. It's down there. Yeah, Wellfleet. I'm up in. You're up in Wellfleet in the book at some point in, on the Cedar Swamp Trail, which yeah. is one of my. Oh, favorite I love places. that trail. Yeah. I've, I've, I, oh, that's so funny. <laughs> I love that trail. It's a very, very yeah. Well, why don't you read us? Why don't you read us a, a passage from it? It's a very, very hot scene <laughs> on the Cedar Swamp Trail, and no one's around, and no one's looking. But um, so this is a book, but it's not just about one character. Uh, I actually. In the audiobook version on Audible, I've done the narration, so that's one thing. I did also 45 character voices, so I did wow. them all. And these voices change because one of the characters uh, starts off not speaking very good English at the beginning of the book, and by the end she's very fluent. So, And she's a very important character, especially in, in, in the main character's life. Um, and also they have their different moods and when his uncle is reciting love poetry or shouting at the the waves during a hurricane to get them to calm down in Cape Cod. I mean, different things happen. And it also takes place in southern England quite a bit. So um, so I could read you part yeah, of Yeah, yeah. Read, read, uh, let's hear a passage from it. Now, we're not taking an excerpt from the audiobook. So... Your listeners are going to have to bear with me as I just briefly <laughs> turn aside to do some sound effects. So you have to imagine the character as a young boy, like you say, about 12 years old, and his grandmother is trying to figure out what to do with him because he is allergic to the family cat. He's allergic to the family cat. So... And I, I th thought that had to be part of it when I saw that. Yeah. Just for our listeners, just to know... Uh, the cover of the book of the novel Mind the Gap has a a gas like a sort of World War Two like era gas mask. It's a British Mark IV gas mask. Okay, yeah. and like uh, for the military nerds, and British a, and, a, and, and a, wearing like a toque, Montreal Canadiens toque. To, okay, yeah, that's very and important. I I laughed when I saw In the, the years cover. When the Montreal Canadiens were a good hockey. Yeah, team. when they were winning and stuff, <laughs> and I laughed because. Uh, George and I were neighbors for years, and he actually has this gas mask in his house, and he pulls it out sometimes. So, like, I, I laughed when I saw it. Yes, we are anyway, not going to go into that. Yeah, we much. won't go into that. This is the so. story. This is this is based on something, but I won't say it's based on my life. Otherwise, someone is going to kill me and <laughs> sue me. So, Grandmother Grief has come to live with Richard Gray and his family because his mother is off in a mental institution. And she's a very forthright woman and she's rarely wrong about people we talked about intuition before john she has very good intuition uh, however she's also a little squirrely so grandmother grief i pleaded a few months later i go to school now my classmates at school are always making fun of me they say the montreal canadians are the greatest hockey team in history but i don't know any of the players they say i'm just stupid Hmm, she said, the white hairs on her upper lip bristling with irritation, pondering the solution to this problem. I know just what to do. Dick, come with me. We got into the car and drove a good hour to the corner of McGill Street and Notre Dame Street in Old Montreal. Of course, in the audiobook version, you hear, you hear her driving. It's like pretty uh, scary. We entered an army surplus store. 
I was amazed to see all the paraphernalia in the display cases, submachine guns, pistols, swords, hunting knives, old hand grenades. There was even a Nazi helmet with a bullet hole through it. I wondered if it had been taken off a corpse in a trench somewhere. On the counter were heaps of dusty old Air Force and Army uniforms. Oui, madame, said a thin little salesman with long, greasy black hair and dirty fingernails. What can I do for you? I need a gas mask, said Grandmother Grieve. May I ask what for? asked the salesman. It's for my grandson, so he can watch TV. Ah, oui, I see. Well, I have a British Mark IV. The salesman rifled through the drawers under the counter and pulled out something long and dark. It was a thick rubber mask with enormous glass eyepieces set in the fabricized rubber, a central speech diaphragm with a long tube coming out of it that connected to a purple canister which had an asbestos filter in it. The salesman pulled it over my face, adjusting the elastic bands around the back of my head to keep it in place. The gas mask is fifteen dollars, said the salesman. But will your grandson walk around wearing the gas mask? If so, he will need the canvas tote bag, which I can offer you for just two dollars more. <laughs> I said. We, bought, we got back into the car. I was still wearing the gas mask. Suddenly, I realized this meant war. And that was all because <laughs> the character, Richard Gray, is allergic to the family cat. And uh, his grandmother believes in Tocqueville and democracy and the majority. So there's been a vote taken, and his brother and sister voted against getting rid of the cat, <laughs> and therefore he lost. But Tocqueville called that the tyranny of the majority. Yeah, yeah. So he lives... So now you can watch the Canadians games on the TV with the gas mask on. So that well, you so that you'll know how to talk about the players and the games well, when you're at school and you won't be a dork. You have to realize that Canada, even though the Montreal Canadiens and the Toronto Maple Leafs are really lousy teams at this point, Vancouver is not so bad. Uh hockey's a kind of re- national religion. So I mean, he wants to watch hockey on TV. So then I have another scene, just a moment. Um, I went down to the TV room, which was poorly lit. The TV room had a dusty old cloth-covered sofa and funky orange plastic fishnet curtains going up the wall to little windows that had been nailed shut. I sat down in between Sister Florence and Brother Andrew. The television set was an old zenith mounted on brass peg legs. The cat liked to sit on top of it because it was always warm there. I didn't know hockey well, but I was enjoying the game. Here's Red Kelly of the Leafs, breaking out over the red line, but oh, John Ferguson of the Canadians whacks him. That looks like boarding, but the referee doesn't call it. Kelly now, getting up again, skates off to the Leafs bench. Centerman Dave Kewen takes his place for Toronto. What's happening? I asked. 
I couldn't follow the action because the glass eyepieces on my gas mask were fogging up. Shut up, Dick, said Andrew, punching me. Here's Montreal goalie Gump Worsley retrieving the puck from behind the net. He passes it out to defenseman Jean-Claude Tremblay. Tremblay passes up to Jean Béliveau. A long flick shot, that's Tremblay's specialty. The Toronto player's in disarray. What's happening? Now Béliveau, stick handling, on a breakaway. Over the blue line into the Toronto zone, goalie Johnny Bauer skating backwards, reaching out with broad shoulders to keep everything covered. Béliveau dekes him and shoots the puck. He scores! Jean Béliveau, a goal for Montreal. I was breathing so heavily now that the cat, sitting on the television set, freaked out, arching its back and hissing, then jumped up onto the orange fishnet curtains and clawed its way higher in desperation. Shut up and get out of here, shouted Sister Florence and Brother Andrew. Dick, you're wrecking everything. I fled to my bedroom. I flung off the gas mask. It was winter, and I didn't care. I felt humiliated. I opened the windows and let the river air blow into the room, covering the window sill with a powdering of fresh snowflakes. The St. Lawrence hadn't frozen yet and sent short waves rushing onto the shore in the darkness. I listened to the rest of the game on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because that's, I mean, it, it's interesting like how much things have changed from just a couple generations because now sure, yeah, yeah. the... Uh, you know, I, in the I, 1960s. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I've heard many stories like this. Like, if there was one person in a workplace or in a family that had, like, an allergy or an aversion or something like that, the, the idea was, well, you have to sort of accommodate yourself to the majority, right? Whereas now we've kind of gone completely in the opposite direction, where in a lot of circles now, it's like, if there's one person in the group, we have to totally accommodate ourselves to that person's sensitivity so like we i mean there was a a memo that went around at work you know last year where like for trigger warnings right and they said like you may have one person in your class that could be upset by showing this kind of content in your class or talking about this and so you should just um the best thing is to just not present this content at all right but if you are going to, you have to sort of have these flashing signs like trigger warnings say, you know, watch out, this might be upsetting to you and things like that. It's yeah. Like, it's completely the opposite. Like well, they the, would have they would have got rid of the cat. For the character in this story, it's like, you got a problem, put on a gas mask. Shut up. It's like a little yeah. bit different. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a out. completely well, it's it's funny because we were we were talking about this the other day. We we're sitting around with a bunch of friends and we had a, a situation when I was at Concordia where uh, in undergrad and they were trying, this was when it was just in the 1990s when they were just kind of the sort of political correctness and trying to be more inclusive and things like that was just kind of taking off. And there was this real attempt, very sweet actually, and very like well-motivated attempt to try and be more inclusive. But you could already see like then kind of foreshadowing of what's happening now, like 20 years later, uh, where there's people that will take take that too far, like already. Like there was this one uh, very charismatic um, 
young woman who's a Concordia student, and she was a member of the uh, sort of Muslim Student Association. And she's very, I actually took two classes with her. She's really, really smart, very interesting. But she sort of, as soon as they were saying, we want to be more inclusive of minority groups within the university population, she got involved in like student government. And she said, well, as a, as a Muslim, I don't, I don't drink alcohol. And so I don't think we should have any alcohol at any student events anymore in the future. And <laughs> you can see the people, in this, they were like, uh, uh, we want to be inclusive, but and, and finally, like they said, like no, like uh, if you don't want to drink, then don't drink, uh, and we won't offer you a drink. But you can't dictate terms to the majority, you know, just as a as a member of a minority that doesn't want to do that thing. Right? I I would just like to point out something. I don't know if your listeners realize this, but it's very hard to explain your position to people when you're wearing a gas mask. <laughs> <laughs> I I did like that image of you trying to like or the oh the um the character uh, oh, uh, yeah, yeah yeah sorry no. the character no, we're like, not we're not going into try to try to talk with like the fogged up like glasses and stuff like that like okay that. now the the character Richard Gray um he does freelancing to pay his way through university of course university tuition in Canada is nothing like in the United States. So freelancing will help pay the fee. But um, and he is a stringer for the BBC uh, World Service, BBC Radio 4 in Eastern Canada. And they ask him to do all kinds of random reporting on, you know, but it's the 1970s. So it's like, you know, what, what the heck is happening with the Montreal Olympics in 1976? Why are there so many construction delays? And it seems like a total fiasco. Is it actually going to be cancelled or whatever? Or there's a constitutional crisis in Canada, which we had many of in those years. And it's hard to explain to people uh, that Canada was not quite an independent country even then. Uh, it's kind of strange because the Constitution of Canada was actually stashed away in a drawer in the Palace of Westminster in London at the time. So Canada didn't even possess its own constitution. So he's reporting for the BBC. And they would call him by telephone. And this was not done in uh, two ways, like satellite links in studios. It was actually done by telephone. Just then, the phone rang. Oh, no, the BBC. I turned the water off. Uh, excuse me, I just point out this is a novel. And I'm talking about Richard Gray, a fictional character. <laughs> sure. <laughs> just then the phone My rang. friend has an itch. Um, should he see a doctor? <laughs> just then, the, no, there's a lot of stuff here that's totally made up. Just then the phone rang. Oh, no, the BBC. I turned the water off while he's in the shower and reached out for a towel, but no towel was to be found. Darn, Francois, his... his uh, flatmate must have forgotten the wet laundry in the basement of the apartment building and after his night out with Florence he was still sound asleep. I emerged from the shower blinded by all the shampoo and soapy water streaming down my face. With the humidity in the bathroom the two-page script of my dispatch had curled up like a pair of wilted flowers. I could barely read the words. This was it. I was exposed. This is London. BBC World Service, and then it goes on, the dispatch that he does, the intro from the BBC announcer. 
and then he is just winding down with the dispatch. He's still stark naked with soap streaming down his body. And fourth, the French architect of the 72,000-seat Olympic Stadium, who's being paid a reported $40 million for the design, has refused to make any compromises and may be removed from the project. As I read the dispatch, my eyes smarting from the dripping soap suds, I did my best to sound poised and factual, but here I was, reporting live for the world service of BBC Radio, stark naked in front of 40 million listeners. I pictured the Queen Mother tuning in during afternoon tea at the Royal Lodge in Windsor. What would she think if she knew? And Chloe, the girl next door, listening in from the Sorbonne in Paris and Soviet dissidents huddled around a clandestine shortwave radio concealed under floorboards, and house of villagers in northern Nigeria gathered around their communal ghetto blaster, and the captain on the bridge of a Greek supertanker plunging through mountainous waves in the roaring forties south of the Cape of Good Hope. And here I was, without a stitch on, a glistening blob of soap bubbles, my voice reaching out to the multitude. At least Gustav the Goose, my sister's pet, wasn't poking around the bathroom this time or slurping up another plate of cold spaghetti. Much to my relief, the producer added from the control room at Bush House in London, Marvellous, Dick, just the way we like it. A tight story, to the point, crisply delivered. Cheers! So maybe this character, Richard Gray, invented the naked news. Maybe. Maybe. Because this yeah. happened in the 1970s. So does this, uh, does this novel, it goes from the 1960s to present? Or when does no, it no, end? It, uh, it stops around 1977. Oh. And uh, he's, you know, uh, some people say that the character closely resembles me. But actually, in, in my mind, I saw him more as a as a kind of a romantic dreamer who just locks out sometimes like Ben Stiller. And uh, he, uh, he has a lot of different experiences. He, he goes to McGill University, learns about the wider world. He's from a little village on the south shore of the St. Lawrence, uh, you know, downstream from Montreal. He doesn't really know a lot about life. He certainly doesn't know about the facts of life. His father's very absent as he's growing up because his father's always busy. And in the novel, you find out what he's busy doing, which is really very, very funny. And his mother is away, and he, you know, develops a very strong relationship with her when she gets back. And this parts of what happened in his family life that he never understood, and he pieces it together gradually. And his grandmother's a very good influence on him. Blanche Grieve, God bless her. But uh, she's also a very old person, and she's born in the 1890s, so... Some of his cultural references and his style of writing very romantic, sort of late Victorian poetry, this is due to his grandmother. And uh, the characters are generally very easy to, to get to know. Some of them tell the most outrageous lies, which of course is always fun in a, in a dramatic comedy. But he manages to get through to young adulthood and in reasonable shape and he's just a very 
a very unusual person and growing up wearing a gas mask for seven or eight years <laughs> inside his own house. You know, sometimes he would even wearing it, wear it crossing the, the, the living room. So you know. what what is this this character like? How bad are his reactions, allergic reactions to the cat? Like, well, he has asthma with okay, the cat, so and he, he closes them, up. He scratches himself all over. But I think more importantly, the gas mask is a kind of confinement, and he's struggling to escape confinement in his dream world. And there are dreams in the in 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 the book. There's nightmares too. Uh, some are happy dreams, and some are nightmares. But and there are other characters struggling to escape confinement of their own, whether physical or psychological. So it sounds like it's going to be an interesting. Uh, I'm a sort of a, I, I'm a teacher, so I'm always imagining kind of like how do you how do you assign this book? How would, like what kind of? And if if I was doing a, a, a class, I know a friend of mine uh, who's probably listening as well. She she teaches. We both teach a, a Montreal class. And it's like a kind of history and culture of Montreal. And very often, we both assign the favorite game, you know, by Leonard Cohen, which is that coming of age story about coming of age in Montreal and and feeling like an outsider and trying to kind of break out and you know going always feeling not quite in place anywhere, right? As a yeah, and yeah. Um, that, so it's, it's an obvious kind of that's it, okay. It's a it's a yeah. parallel to that. But the reason why I asked about like how far does the novel go is that if, if the main character is a journalist, it would, uh, you know, maybe you're going to have to write a sequel to this at some point, but it, it'd be just such an interesting thing because journalism is, is one of those fields that has just really, really tanked in the last couple of decades in terms of like, uh, it, it's very hard um, to make a living off of it. Like, I mean, I was talking to Albert Nuremberg when, when he was on the podcast and he said, you know, in the 19, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, he would get, I, I can't remember what he said. He would get like 500 bucks for a, a little article in the Montreal Gazette. And for longer pieces, he'd, you know, get thousands of dollars and they would also pay for expenses. And he said like today, uh, having like a small article in the New York Times, you're going to be getting about 500 bucks. Like, and it's, and they will not accept most of what you do anyway. And like the, so the, uh, the amount of money you can make off of it has gone way, way down. The working conditions have gone way down. And so it, it's, I, I always think it's interesting to sort of imagine how does somebody who's on a sinking ship of, a, of a profession, how do you, navigate that like how do you deal with that personally i mean like so but i guess he the novel ends and journalism is still at its at its high point at that point you know what you say about sinking ships reminds me suddenly of what we were talking about at the beginning of our conversation conrad black and i remember very distinctly i went to see him in december 2006 in his Bridal Path Mansion, which is worth uh, $25 million. Um, and um, his conviction came in June 2007. So this was, you know, a few months beforehand. And I laid out to him that I was writing this biography and he said a lot of stuff. And his butler, whose name was Werner, and was a very, you know, very correct German or Austrian of the old school, wanted to take a photograph of us, yeah? Um, 
together, which is, you know, very nice because I was writing a book about him. And I wasn't kissing anyone's ass, believe me. I was, you know, I asserted my independence, which was very important. Um, and I was independent and I still am. But um, Conrad Black has these fabulous ship models, like the most beautiful collection of large ship models that I've ever seen. The kind of ship models you would have seen in the olden days in shipping agencies. So I grew up in a in a shipping family in Montreal, and we were used to seeing these like spectacular six foot long models of you know uh, I don't know what passenger liners that they had. Conrad Black had dozens of the most incredible ship models of passenger liners and battleships, uh, Japanese, American, many American, British, you know, dreadnoughts like battleships. And like with was, all the details and everything. Yeah, yeah, it was just unbelievable. They were like to scale five, six feet like, long. They were immaculate. They were like museum pieces. And he was very surprised that I could identify them all. Like, because I was raised in that culture of shipping and the sea. I, I knew like that was the Mauritania and this was, uh, you know, I said, is that the Rex? He said, these are not Rex. These are real ships. But no, I was referring to the Rex, R-E-X, an Italian passenger liner, <laughs> a super liner of the 1930s. So I may have known more than he did about that. But Werner wanted to take our picture, not in front of the Empress of Britain, you know, a Canadian Pacific passenger liner I personally liked, but in front of the Titanic. Oh, this is the sinking ship concept that you mentioned. Oh, wow. And I said, like, no, that's very, very bad like a bad karma no don't do that we can't no it's a bad omen don't do that no no it's not a good idea i refuse to have my picture taken with conrad black in front of the titanic but maybe i mean maybe he maybe i was in the lifeboat and writing my book and he went down with the ship i don't know what do you, <laughs> perhaps what perhaps. do you think i know one of the most one of the most memorable uh, scenes in the in your movie the the, the Aronson movie. The early draft, yeah. The, the early draft. The, the yeah. movie is, because I remember when you were, you, you let me like watch a couple of them and stuff like that, was the scene where, I think it's the, the, the British adventurer and he's got a bunch of people and they're trying to like get to the South Pole and they've brought like ponies or horses. Yeah. And they're, and they're, they're kind of falling into this icy water and they're getting eaten by like killer whales or something. Like it was just completely yeah, wacky. Yeah. Can, what can you tell me? What the sure, real? Yeah, the, this this is uh, during the uh, Terra Nova expedition, which was led by Robert Falcon Scott in nineteen ten, eleven, and twelve. And uh, they 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 had seen Ernest Shackleton, uh, one of Scott's main rivals uh, in his uh, career bring ponies to Antarctica several years beforehand. So they said, this is a good idea. We'll do the same thing. And the ponies will take us inland in Antarctica. And inland means going up because the summit, like the South Pole in altitude, is something like 10,000 feet or 3,000 meters. It's very high. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know glaciers on the way up and there's a lot of crevasses and the problem with ponies as they learned was ponies have narrow hooves and uh, they tend to fall in between the cracks and they're not at all appropriate for transport of baggages 
and, you know, whatever, food and what have you. Although Scott treated them as a source of food when their time was done. I mean, they, you know, cut them up and ate them. Um, and so they, the, the, the people in Britain have a great fondness for animals. And I think they're very reluctant to talk about, you know, the nitty gritty of actually eating animals. And this is partly why uh, the, all the claims that Amundsen was so cruel to dogs to the point of actually eating them, you know, built up into a legend of this nasty Norwegian, you know, schemer and vicious person who actually ate his dogs. Well, uh, Captain Cook ate dogs and Charles Darwin ate a cougar. I mean, people eat lots of things in, out in the wilds, and Scott and his crew ate horses. So, I mean, is that any better or worse, or is it just the same? But there's a, the, the, they were, the, the crew were trying to be nice to the ponies, and like, oh, I'm going to take them down to the water and have a look, you know. But I don't know what was going on in the pony's mind, but they brought one pony to the, the ice edge, uh, before they headed on the big expedition inland. And unfortunately, uh, the ice wasn't that thick. It was maybe two or three feet thick. And all of a sudden, a pot of killer whales turned up. And they're game, the killer whales. They're game. Like, they, they're they very, very smart animals. They're incredible. They're like killing machines. They're, they're very, very physically strong. They are able to bump up underneath the ice and, like, separate it from the the ice edge and so this poor pony was about to be devoured by killer whales and the person like uh, Ponting who was a fantastic nature photographer who came along nearly was uh, you know swallowed up by killer whales himself there's a very dramatic painting of this situation which I have in the film um, uh, but um, the British uh, crew decided the best thing to do was to take an axe and kill the pony so that it wasn't eaten alive by the killer whales. But uh, at a certain point, you have to say, well, look, uh, it's very unfortunate, but uh, this pony's going down. So they felt, I think it, they felt they were being humane by killing it themselves rather than have it be eaten up little bits at a time. But, I mean, killer whales eat quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you, yeah. I don't know if you heard on it's been like all over the news recently. Those and I I immediately thought about this oh I said I really want to go back and look at that painting in George's movie because um, they've recently discovered that the killer whales that are down there in Antarctica are a separate species of killer whale. They call them like something like type D killer whales they're um they have a smaller the kind of the white eye patch is much much smaller their fins are much more angular and they um they are found just in the waters around antarctica that's that's the only place they're found i, I, and I can say one thing about that i i've been um uh, during my wanderings uh to patagonia a lot i've done i did a documentary in patagonia as i mentioned earlier and um i've been down to patagonia a lot and in Patagonia, you have killer whales that are actually, they spot seals on the beach, on the shore. And the killer whales are actually able to drive themselves right up onto the shore, out of the water, swallow the seal whole, and then like backtrack with their flippers and get back into the water. They are the most incredible 
animals. Patagonia is a bit like the Yukon, except that they have good wine and much better food. <laughs> And, yeah, be- and, and and beautiful women. Yeah, they, well, no, you should you should definitely check that check that out. It's like it's they it's very odd that uh, like Franz Duval, the ethologist, he on his uh, his website he was talking about it extensively the other day, and he said, you know, it's it's very odd to have a large animal that is not known to science, like we. You know, there's small little things that we keep sort of discovering in, in, yeah. in places. Yeah. And there's new insects and, you know, small. Every once in a while we find something sort of like a, a new deer species in the middle of some rainforest in, in Papua New Guinea. But, problem, but to have something as big as a, a big whale that we didn't know about? The problem we have as human beings, we have this very agitated, restless, analytical mind. And... Our starting point is we assume that other species do things for the same reason we do. First of all, we don't really know why we do things. We can't always say why. But also, this blocks us from understanding other species. And why should we, why should we assume that a bird singing is not just singing music? Why do we have to say... Oh no, it's uh, by instinct and uh, it's just by rote and therefore it has no meaning whatsoever. When I go up as I did this last weekend on Mount Royal in Montreal and listen to all the beautiful bird song and I was uh, with my fiancé recently in Costa Rica. We were in the rainforest and we just, there's just an incredible amount of bird song there and there's a lot of bird song in Mind the Gap in my, in my novel, in the audio book version of the novel. There's a lot of bird song because... It just it just freaks me out. It's just so beautiful. What's what's your what's your favorite uh, bird song? Because I have a really 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 favorite one. But what, what's your favorite bird song? I would say it's the Swainson's thrush, which is a a bird we have a lot in the northeast of the U.S. and in uh, eastern Canada, and they migrate, so it must be in the southeastern U.S. as well. And it has a kind of a a tunneling sound. It's it's very hard to describe in words, uh, but it's for me, it's something that is so spiritual. And when I feel on the hiking trail, like in the Adirondacks or in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, when I hear, or in, in uh, the Appalachian section in southern Quebec, we have part of the Appalachians in southern Quebec, when I hear this bird singing, I just feel I'm at home. It's just the most beautiful thing. Um, but in Costa Rica, there's birds that sound a little bit like birds that I thought I knew, like the European blackbird, but it's there's totally other species. And I met quite a few ornithologists down there, people. I, I met a, a, a wonderful woman who uh, did a, mass, a, a doctorate in musical composition at Princeton. Uh, and th- her name is uh, Emily Doolittle. And like Doctor Doolittle, and she, um, but she wrote her, her PhD dissertation on um, the song of the European blackbird and of humpbacks, and she analyzed it and got down right to the level of, uh, you know, she said it was like jazz improvisation. It was it was something really meaningful, and uh, you'd have to read it. You'd have to invite her on your podcast. She's yeah, a great that's. Lady. Uh, that that's I 
because I, I find that stuff really, really, really fascinating. We know but nothing. I, yeah. We know, but, we, yeah. but I remember I was doing it. Well, they, I, they have local, I mean, we know that animals have culture yeah. and they have, um, and they do sort of have, you see this especially with things like orcas, you know, killer whales, where they, they have uh, culture. So for instance, like you're talking about this behavior, which is fascinating and I've I've never actually heard about this before but where they beach themselves to get, to get a seal. Yeah. Well, one thing ethologists have been talking about for a while is that uh this is like like a particular culture, a particular community of of orca will have at some point in their distant past some genius, some orca genius figured out this way of getting seals and they will pass that on to their to each successive generation but orcas in other parts of the world this is not a function of instinct they will pass that on to the next generation and orcas in another area don't know how to do that to get the seals right and so this right. is and this in is one of the population yeah, yeah and so one of the problems is if you take um a killer whale like you you steal a baby and put it in like you know sea world or something like that and then they later on you know feel guilty about it and they want to put it back in the ocean they, if you put them in a in a pod where they they literally don't speak the language of those people of those orca, right? They don't speak their language. They don't understand the culture. They're going to be as out of place as if you take somebody who grew up in Montreal and you know the aliens abduct you for like ten years and then they feel bad and they put you back in the middle of rural Saudi Arabia and be like, oh yeah, you're with other humans. You're not going to be able to talk to those people. <laughs> you're not going to be able to relate to them. Uh, but but in terms of what you're saying about the bird song, uh, my my personal favorite is the is the call of the the red winged blackbird. The male. It's, it's very nice. That's yeah. my my favorite. Like if that's the last thing I hear, that's a very like, much on real, Earth. It's a very much. I I will be. Sure, yeah. You know that's I absolutely adore. Like it, it fills me with just pure joy. Like that's the sound of spring for me. Is hearing, but I like uh, the you, Ameri- I like the approximately ten songs of the American Robin too. I really oh, like yeah. robins. They're they're they have a wonderful, wonderful and occasionally very have, haunting. Occasionally very haunting. we get mockingbirds in Montreal. Not that too often, but you know the environment's changing. We didn't like thirty years ago, forty years ago. No cardinals came up here, now, and you get a lot of them now. So have you by any chance like read it's sort of popular set of novels? They they made movies out of it. The Hunger Games. Not yet, no. Okay, well, it's it's like a it's like a trilogy. I think it is a trilogy. Anyway, it's a, a bunch of these kind of very dystopian future, very creepy. Stephen King wrote the most glowing review I've ever read of his was of the Hunger Games. He said it was an absolutely haunting novel, very creepy. But anyway, one of the the sub themes in in the novel series, the main character Katniss Everdeen. Her father had such a beautiful, beautiful voice that, and there's these things called mocking jays, which are which are a kind of genetically uh, engineered version of the mockingbird, which this futuristic American government uses to spy on people and to listen in on people and then come back and repeat verbatim what the conversation was. They're like spyware. You know, in uh, that is genetically engineered spyware that's birds, but her father had such a beautiful voice that he would go out into the forest and he would like do bird calls and sing, and all the birds in the forest would go quiet 
and listen to him and then they would respond and he would do call and answer with the birds it's just this like really kind of like magical freaky thing like i i you know it's just a, it's a little bit of i mean the last book in the series is called mocking jay where she actually kind of embodies this and gets like a suit you know but i've gone through three phases in my life so far and in the first phase, and I'm speaking about myself, not about the character in the novel. Um, I, in the first phase, I felt I didn't know anything, and I was very distressed about that. I didn't, I didn't know the facts of life. I knew nothing. And I got to McGill University, and I felt like, oh, I'm in a campus with 25,000 people. I was meeting all kinds of young women and young men and professors, and but I knew nothing. And I was very anxious because some of our professors would ask the most incredibly uh, pointed questions. And I wanted to be sure like not to be the one they were looking at when they were asking the question because I didn't know the answer. And then, and then I, I, I got into my second phase where I felt I knew a lot of things and I'd learned so much and I was so happy about that. And, Maybe I was proud, and maybe that's not such a good thing. And then the third phase, I realized, well, actually, I don't know very much, and it's perfectly okay. I don't really mind. And I think specifically, since we're talking about it, about the animal world. And, you know, in doing the Amundsen film, I realized the strongest message of the film is nature is not out there. It's not like in the book of Genesis, like we are going to dominate all other species. Uh, maybe humans are losing our survival instinct and maybe this is a, a very bad omen for the future because of all the environmental problems that we're creating. But nature is not out there. We are part of nature. We are animals ourselves. We've got very much caught up in our systems and our uh, ability to you know, build things, uh, uh, our ability to rationalize and to verbalize. But actually, I don't really know very much and what i would like to do with my creative works now is to offer the best of what i've learned and share it with other people share it with you john yeah well there's one it, it's funny this just flashed in my mind but i remember you describing to me in detail and it's like so burned <laughs> in my my mind he was watching the snow geese when you're you're down the river with marie can't remember where and the snow geese were all like flying over and your description of it was so kind of it's like one of those things that comes back to you in, in dreams where were you when that happened the snow geese you were talking about the how they like were all like flying over well, there's like been a few places like that there's been a few because we 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 like to go there's something like a million snow geese in northern quebec and uh, the eastern canadian arctic in the summer and uh, they come down gradually, and they go to islands in the St. Lawrence River uh, downstream from Quebec to uh, on their way to, I don't know, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina for the winter, Georgia probably. Um, but we tend to check it out quite a bit. But it's fascinating to go and see them because they don't mind. There's so many of them that they don't really mind that humans are there looking, and you can... You can do it in an unobtrusive way. We didn't, you know, point guns at them or anything. We are not going to kill them. But um, it's very interesting to see the family unit in snow geese. 
like there's a family unit with a mother and a father and you know a baby or maybe two babies and the the little ones and they 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 pick worms out of the mud together and you know they, but they they protect each other and the father's watching like you know stand back to the other ones and like don't get too close to my you know my little gang here it's, it's very interesting to see it must be very traumatic for them when uh you know some of them are shot down and knocked out of the sky i i know that canada geese mate for life so there's a lot of things that happen to animals that we can't quite fathom um if they are able to navigate due to um their some kind of a magnetic system that they have, you know, in the star charts or whatever. I mean, I don't know too much about it, but if they're actually able to navigate at night while flying, they obviously have uh, senses and powers that are well beyond anything humans can handle. Yeah, well, so. my, my favorite my favorite bird on Mount Royal is the indigo bunting. That beautiful, yeah, yeah, the uh, beautiful yeah. bluebirds oh, with yeah. like the little black on the wing, yeah. and the indigo bunting. I've seen they, I've seen one. Yeah. Uh, they have this crazy navigation thing. They fly by night, and they can go from one place to another at night. And they have, uh, they're not. I'm, I'm trying to remember. Like my my cousin was trying to explain it to me. He's like a real real birder, and apparently they somehow. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't remember what it was, but they somehow pick up on the Earth's magnetic field or something, but they can navigate very, very effectively you know, by night. Well, we have in the summer, we have a few hummingbirds here, like the ruby-throated hummingbird. We have a few. In Costa Rica recently, we found out they have something like 60 species of hummingbird. I'm not surprised. I don't know where they all go. They may go to California or they may go to Washington State. I don't really know. Um, or the East Coast, or whatever. But how can a hummingbird that is so frail, that has like wings that are about as thick as a fairy's wings, like in a fairy tale, how could it fly any distance? How can it migrate thousands of miles or kilometers? How and can their, it do their that? caloric requirements are insane. Yeah. They're like little crackheads. Yeah. Like they need to. You know they need to what consume like their body weight in yeah. nectar like a, I I don't know it's it's insane like they have really I, really one thing that I did I took very bad photographs it's funny because I like I mean I I'm a filmmaker so I I like photography a lot but I took very very bad photographs because I went on a holiday with Marie to Costa Rica uh, a few weeks ago and and I said okay I'm not taking any cameras I won't do that but I had a cell phone so I took out my lame cell phone to take lame pictures of leaf carrying ants isn't that what they're called leaf i'm not sure what's the word in english i'm not sure because i live in most leaf, my... leaf cutter cats leaf, leaf cutter, leaf cutter, leaf cutter ants. Ants. yeah, yeah. I, most of my life i live in french so my english is a little off sometimes but um yeah those are, oh wait 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 yeah those are and the, they carry the... so much leaf yeah. cutters they carry so much of their body weight without any difficulty at all and they're so well organized and you see like the interstate of leafcutter ants, like crossing the trail, the hiking trail where you are, it's like unbelievable. They're so they're so well. But Plato, as you know, wrote about bees and social organization. We don't have to say we agree with what he wrote, but you know, in in terms of regimentation or whatever. But he saw that bees were able to get some kick-ass organization together and have a real society with different tasks allotted and a kind of collective 
vision and purpose to their life, which is amazing. And it's something for me at this point in my life, it, I just find it defies understanding, but I just love it. Yeah, I went for a long hike last week uh, in um, Pointe aux Prairies a nature park in, in Pointe-Notre-Dame in the East End. Right. And um, with this guy who's like a, a real, just kind of inter- kind of a naturalist, you know, interested in all these things. But he's especially very knowledgeable in entomology. And he was just identifying all these species of insects and telling me these things that I'd never heard of before. But one of the things he told me about was, which just blows my mind, is like leafcutter ants. They don't eat leaves. Like, no, no, do you, no, no. Do you know you know about what they, they... They carry it and they put it in their nest like a kind of fungus. It creates a fungus. Okay, you know about this. Yeah, which This they, just blew my yeah, mind. It's very... They feed... They basically bring these leaves and they, they have like cultures of... They have a symbiotic relationship with this kind of fungus. Yeah. The fungus eats the leaves and then they eat the fungus. Right. That's it's crazy. It's like, they're like making they're thinking, cheese or wine or they're something. They're thinking ahead. Well, <laughs> but they're—I mean—they're yeah, yeah, processing yeah. something, right? And they—and he—he said that it's—it's uh, it's not just that. There's like ants that have symbiotic relationships with. Well, of course, we all, most of us, know if you have a garden that there's ants that that uh, they have aphids as their little cows, and they sort of they they eat the. Uh, the honeydew, like basically the crap of the aphids, right? And they, they protect the aphids from predators and then just like eat the, the honeydew. But apparently they also um, have all these symbiotic relationships with different kinds of caterpillars. And so the the question that entomologists had for a long time is, and this gets back to what you were saying about these these, these, these jazz improvisation and songs, they didn't understand Aphids are are ubiquitous in the world. It's not hard to figure out how ants could find aphids when they want them. But with caterpillars, they're not so ubiquitous in the environment, especially if you're a tiny little insect. So they wanted to know how do the caterpillars um, sort of tell the ants where they are? Because, uh, and they thought first, well, maybe it's pheromones. Actually, as it turns out, the caterpillars sing. Oh, in the morning, wow. the caterpillars wow. sing, and it's it's at a frequency that our ears can't hear, but with the right audio equipment, you can actually pick it up. These caterpillars get up, crawl up a stalk, and they sing, and the ants hear them, and the ants come, and the ants protect the caterpillars from all from all predators, and they eat the caterpillars like 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 crap, basically. I, I would like That's insane. To, I would like to throw something in here. A couple of years ago, I did caterpillar a, crap or no, 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 no nothing, <laughs> okay. not fungus. Yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, I I did a three-hour radio documentary series for CBC Radio in Canada. Um, uh, I don't think that one got onto NPR. I don't think so, but it was called the Secret Voice of Nature, and that's actually how I met this. A uh, young woman, Emily Doolittle, who got her doctorate in composition at Princeton and studied the blackbird and humpback song. Uh, I interviewed her for that series, and I went to Patagonia as part of that series as well with my son. But um, I, I believe that there is a secret voice of nature. And I think Robert Louis Stevenson said something like, nature is the v- secret voice of God. And I... I, you know, I'm not a very religious person, 
but I, I, I like the sound of that. There's something very moving and very spiritual in nature. And nature can be a resource for us and it can be a way to find the path back to health if we have a health problem. And I've had a few in my life, uh, fortunately, got over them. But I also feel that even when we say there are things which we can't hear because of the, you know, the frequency or whatever, there are things that we pick up that we're not quite able to articulate. I'll give you an example. People say it's impossible to claim that Northern Lights, Aurora Borealis, actually makes a kind of tingling noise, a bit like... Crinkling. You know, crinkling. Yeah. And no one has ever heard that. Other people say, I've heard it. And I know someone who lives in California who's an audio uh, engineer, and he actually gave me free of charge for my forthcoming film on Roald Amundsen, The Polar Explorer, um, uh, some beautiful tracks of the sound of Aurora Borealis. His name is Stephen McGreevy, and he did a fabulous job. Of course, it is at a level that most people can't hear. I've heard the sound of Northern Lights. Have you? No. Inuit have stories about listening to it and hearing messages that are important to them for their future in the Northern Lights. And I, I, sometimes people say, oh, there's stuff that we... It sort of reminds me of what you were saying a little while ago. Like, you know, there's all these signals going on, the things happening and micro facial expressions and what have you. There's stuff like this happening in nature all the time. We're probably subject to millions of impressions and we're only aware of maybe a few hundred during the course of a day or a night. But we are part of the natural world. We are part of nature ourselves. And all of this is a kind of stream of information or consciousness which is coming to us. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think of like Henry David Thoreau, who's probably one of the most uh, observant, you know, like sensitive people, um, you know, that I've I've ever encountered i mean like if you read his books where he's walking along like the river and his descriptions are so exquisite and precise about you know all the different plants and animals and the different everything that's happening around i mean he really you you feel like you're reading you know adam in the garden you know naming everything you know like he, he's just it's amazing but there's this one uh, this one passage in one of his books where he talks about you just you brought this to mind when you were saying that he talks about walking up a mountain in Maine with this native guy, like this Indian guy, and he is he says, you know, I feel like I am a blind man. Like he said, this guy was picking up on so much more in the surroundings, like pointing out, you know, like like tracks pointing out plants, pointing out relationships between things. And he said it was just like a, you know, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. It was like a mind-blowing experience that he said, I didn't realize how much I wasn't seeing, you know, and that's, I've had that experience a couple of times. The, the most recent time uh, in a really dramatic way was um, I went, my my cousin was in town. He's, he's like a second cousin and, 
uh, he's he's in his seventies, right? And he and his wife were in town. They live on uh, on uh, like outside of Victoria in BC on Vancouver Island, and they're avid birders, right? They've been avid birders their their whole lives, right? And so they wanted to sort of. Uh, you know, they were asking me, oh, do you see any like good birds around the Montreal area? And so I mentioned different species and they weren't very excited. But then I mentioned indigo bunting and they went, oh, yeah, they, 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 they got very, very excited. Yeah. Right. It's a beautiful. So bird. the uh, yeah. so my, my cousin uh, probably will hear this, Michael and his wife, May. I, I said, uh, well, you know, why don't we go for a walk in the mountain? Now, I've I'm a Montrealer. I live really close to the mountain. I go walk on it like you know, a couple times a week at least, right? Sometimes every day. Uh, I've been paying attention to the mountain for decades. And yet when I went on a walk with them on the mountain, I was the person who was getting a guided tour. They just like, and they don't have like, you know, these are like people that are getting up there in age. They don't have like super, you know, Spider-Man's hearing or Superman's uh, sight. They don't have like, uh, they don't have special gifts that other people they just have have attuned themselves to paying attention to what's out there and so just by by hearing they could hear a species and they'd be like oh this is this kind of species i can tell from the song and then we would walk over there and sure enough there would be a bird that i've never ever noticed on the mountain and they did this numerous times like and it just it it gave me that same sort of insight that you're talking about right now where there's so much stuff out there all the time that we're just not, we're just not paying attention, right? So what what Thoreau was saying, walking up this mountain in Maine, he, he wasn't saying like it wasn't some sort of like romanticized, you know, the romanticized native like oh you know they're like somehow you know have superhuman powers. They're just paying attention, and they just have like a culture of being connected to a particular place and paying attention to that place. And if you pay attention for long enough, you you learn a great deal about it, and then you pass it on, and then that's the culture, like the killer whales knowing how to beach themselves. You pass on this culture of deep, close attention to the the, the voices around you, right? I'm going to give you, John, an autograph copy of my <laughs> awesome. novel, but if you get go on Audible and listen to the audio version, there's a lot of bird song, oh, because be I find that. Uh, I find as I get older that birds have accompanied me in some of the darkest times of my life and have always given me our grounds for hope for getting out of that situation. And I remember uh, after my, you know, I could say traumatic experience in Lebanon, watching snow geese on a lake once in the fall that same year. And I kayaked out very slowly, and my kayak was white, so maybe they thought I was like <laughs> some big dumb, some big dumb snow goose like yeah. them. They, you know, like another Canadian snow goose. But I went out; my kayak was white. I kayaked out very, very, very gently, and just managed to get in the middle of this. I don't know what you would call it—a cloud of snow geese. There were maybe two, three hundred of them, and they were, you know, honking to each other in the lake, and they didn't seem to mind me at all. And I just, I, I, I needed so badly to recover from the um, experience that I'd had during that uh, 
story that I was uh, pursuing and the risks that I took and the situation I, you know, thank God managed to get out of, I felt so comfortable being with these snow geese. It took me right out of myself as a human being with deliberation and, you know, rational blah, blah, and all that. The story you keep telling yourself. And I almost felt like I was a snow goose. Like I was like <laughs> a big, big dumb, like, oh, the big fat one, you know? Yeah. I had this, I don't know, 10 foot long kayak. I was right in the middle of it. And then something happened. I don't know if a motorboat revved up the other side of the lake or what, but then they suddenly got all kind of, they started honking at each other and like, oh, we got to get out of here. Something's happening. I don't know what was on their minds exactly, but then they just flew off and then I, that was it. But I, I find that birdsong is something, I also like the way we have seasons and each spring when uh, the snow geese and the Canada geese fly in V formation low over Montreal, southern Quebec, I feel like this is renewal, the time for renewal. And then in the fall, as they head south again, I feel kind of a pincement de coeur, like a tightening of my heart. And it's just, I feel nostalgic for everything that's just happened. And I'm just thinking, well, they'll be back next spring. Yeah, I can't imagine living in a place, I mean, I realize that's just sort of because I grew up here, but like, I can't imagine living in a place that doesn't have seasons. You know, like, it, it, you know, I, I was very, very tempted for a long time to move to Singapore because I, I, when I went there, really? I, I love, I love Singapore. But it's two degrees below the equator. And I just, there's something about the passage of the seasons, which it's it's almost like sort of like life punctuation. You know, it's like, you know, you finish a particular season. That's like, you know, end of paragraph, begin new paragraph. You And it, being in a place without seasons, it would feel like just... As Janis Joplin, you know, say it's it's all the same day, man. It's all the I, same I, fucking day, man. I'd like, you know, like say, that. I'd like to say I agree with you, except summer lasts two weeks in Montreal, and the rest of the year is winter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's getting much summer. warmer because of yeah. climate change. It's summer getting, is warmer, but our winter was brutal this year. It was very, it was. very long. It, but it's getting. I mean, it's getting so warm now that the Canada geese just don't even leave. Yeah, like there's all these places where they just they don't migrate. That's true. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. They just stay there all year round. It's like, yeah. I mean, this was you know if you read like what is it, Tom Robbins, even cowgirls get the blues. I don't know if you remember in the near the end of the novel, there's these whooping cranes that are on the endangered species oh, yeah, list, right. and the main reason that one of the main things that's killing off their populations is that when they travel to this wherever they migrate to, a lot of them die during the migration and so this like stoned out hippie i think it's like bonanza jelly bean she she gives <laughs> she gives the hooping cranes <laughs> like acid or mescaline she gives them some sort of she's like you guys need to like free your mind man and so she gives these hooping cranes like this hallucinogenic drug oh. and the hooping cranes decide that they don't need to migrate anymore and they just hang out in like wherever it is like kansas or wherever they are they just decide to stay there. And so all these like wildlife biologists who are there like watching the hooping cranes, they're completely freaking out because they don't understand why the hooping cranes are like just staying around this lake. And it's because they've been <laughs> they've been poisoned. Corrupted. So, uh, corrupted before before I before I, I have to ask you yes. why the title Mind the Gap? Uh well I 
I think during the the year that I spent at Oxford, um, I went to London a lot, and I took the tube a lot, the 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 subway system, and that's just one of the funniest things. Because I mean, I I'm a person like I I sometimes look serious, uh, I sometimes feel serious, but uh, I just can't stop laughing. And the when you take the subway system in in London, you hear this sort of disembodied voice saying mind the gap mind the gap and then the tube train comes in and the gap is like the space between the platform and the train as it comes in there's like six inches or maybe a foot and they don't want you to fall into it and um so i decided to call the novel mind the gap uh in honor of that because some of it happens in london richard gray's father has a kind of ambiguous career as a railway executive. He's off in London quite a bit. Nobody knows what he's doing there. And in the novel, you have to buy it to find out, he, uh, he, 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 he does do some very unusual things, or at least he claims to. It creates a lot of funny situations. So Mind the Gap is also the gap between imagination and reality, between what you hope for and what really happens, between his mother's illness and her recovery. There's a lot of things. Um, it's the title. And some people are saying to me, even now, the book just came out a few weeks ago. They're saying, you got to follow this up with a sequel. And I've got some ideas. I don't want to launch into it just yet because it's, uh, you know, bringing out a novel and, and publishing it on Amazon in three different versions is a big enterprise. Let's just see how things go. But um, I, I would give it a completely different name. Yeah, something like dead men gathering. It would be something really, <laughs> really funny. I mean, yeah, uh, because there's some ghosts in this story too, and there's ghosts in his mind, and in some ways he wonders whether he's not a ghost himself, Richard Gray. So, as you find out by the end, no, he's not. So, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I can't wait to read your novel. I will definitely, uh, I will definitely. I'm, I'm going to just because I, you know, I, I like your voice. I'm going to listen to the audiobook version, Good. and I'm going to yeah. listen to it while walking around on the mountain like uh, right. that's uh, that'll well, be then, like then you're going to have the feeling with your with your headphones on when you hear bird song in the audible version you're going to think these are real birds up on the mountain that's perfect that's that's great <laughs> all right well thank you so much and uh, you're job. going to have to come on again in the future we, we've got to do this again oh we'll talk about something else <laughs> all right okay thank thanks. you